Please take your Bible and turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 7. This morning, I'm going to read verses 13 and 14. These are the words of Jesus found in the Sermon on the Mount. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Now, if you will turn to John chapter 14, verse 6, familiar verse of Scripture to you, I'm sure. John 14, 6, we read that Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Now, clearly, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking about the two possible roads which people may travel in this life. Both of them have an ultimate destination. One is a destination of destruction. It's the broad way. The other is the narrow way. The picture which Jesus paints in Matthew 7, 13, and 14 is a picture of humanity marching toward an encounter with God ultimately at the end of their lives. And one group is marching side by side. It's like a throng of people marching, and they're marching to their destruction. The other group is marching more single file. And it's the narrow way which they are following. There's only one way to God, and that's through Jesus Christ. And people can get to know Jesus one at a time. We don't get to know Jesus as a group. We come to Him one at a time. That's the main teaching that Jesus is giving in Matthew seven thirteen and 14. I'd like to focus this morning on just a part of what Jesus says in verse 14 and couple that with what He says in John fourteen six, where He describes Himself as the way. The King James Version of the Bible actually translates John 7, 14, the portion that we're going to concentrate on this morning, this way. Narrow is the way, Jesus says. In a sense, he's saying, I myself am narrow. Now stop for a moment and think with me. Is it a compliment to call someone narrow today? It was no more a compliment in Jesus' day to be considered narrow. However, Jesus is narrow in the sense that Jesus Christ sets boundaries for us. And quite honestly, Jesus Christ set limits for himself. What were the limits that Jesus set for himself when he walked the face of the earth in human flesh? The first which comes to my mind is that he set geographical boundaries for himself. Have you thought, except for that brief period of time in his infancy, when his parents took him to Egypt to escape the wrath of King Herod, except for that time which undoubtedly he could not remember, he was one who confined his wanderings and his teachings to one little geographical area known as Palestine. Palestine is the size of our state of Connecticut. Have you ever looked at Connecticut on a map? Depending upon the size of the map that you look at, sometimes you can hardly find it. It gets all jumbled up with all those other small northeastern states. That is how Jesus Christ chose to live his life, in that small geographical area. It was not a prominent area. 
the movers and shakers of the great urban areas of the Roman world probably would have had to pull out a map just to find where Palestine was. It was not a place they would go for vacations. It was a very obscure Roman tributary. It was a place that was basically a rural nation. And Jesus Christ did not merely limit him most of his life, and quite honestly, a lot of his teaching time, to that little place known as Palestine, but he concentrated most of his life on a part of that nation in the north, Galilee. A ruler of the nation of Tyre once described Galilee in this fashion. He gave it the name Kabul, which translated in Hebrew means good for nothing. Think about it. Jesus spent most of his life in an area that men outside of the region of Palestine described as good for nothing. Jesus Christ limited himself. He could have traveled the whole world because we do know from our study of contemporary history that there were some great teachers which did travel the world to espouse their philosophy and their teaching. But Jesus didn't do that. He could have gone to Athens and stood on Mars Hill, the eternal city there in Greece, and taught what he taught in Palestine, but he chose not to do so. He limited himself geographically. As I was thinking about this, my mind went to a great figure in church history from the 17th century. His name was Richard Baxter. Baxter was an Englishman. He was a priest or a pastor in the Church of England. He was really basically uneducated. He was well-educated, but he was self-educated. He did not have a degree. He was a man who was a great man of God. He preached with incredible power. The Holy Spirit used him in a mighty way. And he, therefore, was in demand. Other churches in bigger centers of industry and urbanization wanted him to come to be their pastor. But he refused the overtures which were made to him to come to fulfill such a role. He chose to stay in the little village of Kidderminster. There were 800 families who inhabited that village. And he and his associate every year would devote two days a week to meet with the families who comprised their church. And what they would do when they would meet with them, they would spend at least an hour with every family, and they would go over a catechism which, which Baxter himself had made for his church people in Kidderminster. And a catechism, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the term, is a list of truths about the gospel of Jesus Christ and about God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And he would teach these truths to them. It was said that many times when he would leave their homes or if they came to the church building to hear these truths and to be examined on them, they would leave with tears in their eyes. Many were converted as he and his associate would go and spend that time. He, now listen to this carefully. This may not astound you, but it really astounds me. And at the same time, it rebukes me. During his lifetime, he wrote 170 books which were published. Now, I don't know how long the books were. I do know that one book is still used in seminaries today, evangelical seminaries. It's called The Reformed Pastor, and it's used as a standard for what constitutes excellent pastoral ministry to this day. Now, we're talking about 400 years ago when this man lived. 170. That was before the, day of, the days of word processors or typewriters. He did that all by hand. Here's the question. Would Richard Baxter have been able to accomplish what he accomplished if he had gone from church to church to church throughout his pastoral ministry? 
was highly doubtful. He would have accomplished a lot more than most pastors in church history have accomplished, but it's doubtful. It's because he chose to limit himself geographically in the tiny village of Kidderminster, England. When Ricky and I were young men, and that is a long time ago, it's been almost 30 years ago, Ricky and I decided, I believe Ricky was still in seminary and I was just barely a pastor myself, that we would attend a conference for pastors and church leaders in Houston. We went there and we had all kinds of anticipation about what we were going to learn. We were excited about it, and rightly so. And among those who were presenting was a pastor by the name of Ray Stedman. And Dr. Stedman was the pastor of the Palo Alto Actually, it was the Peninsula Bible Church in Palo Alto, California, a church which was made up of many students from Stanford University and professors from Stanford. And it was a church which had tremendous impact. And we had become familiar with him through his writings. I had had the privilege, actually, of having lunch with Dr. Stedman along with my pastor in Memphis, Tennessee, before I went to seminary. And we had lunch with him. Actually, we didn't have it planned. We went up and talked to him after he had talked the first time. He gave about three or four sermons, if I remember correctly, Ricky. And we said, Dr. Stedman, do you have any lunch plans? He said, I'll have to check with my handler, the person in charge of the conference. He didn't. And we said, would you mind going to lunch with us? He said, I'll be glad to. And he looked at us and he could tell we didn't have a lot of money. We were young, still wet behind the ears. And so he said, Dr. Stedman... Where would you like to go to lunch? We would have taken him anywhere. And he said, well, why don't we go to Wendy's? <laughs> oh, hey, man, we can afford that. You, I don't know if Ricky remembers that, but I remember it because I'm so money conscious as it is. Still am. So we went there, and we had a wonderful time with Dr. Ray Stedman. It was tremendous just to pick his brain. He's probably about our age now, maybe somewhere in his 50s, mid to late 50s. And I asked him this question. I said, Dr. Stedman, have you ever considered leaving Peninsula Bible Church to go to another church? And this is what he, he said, without hesitation. He said, why should I? I haven't finished my job here yet. I haven't finished teaching through the Bible yet. And he never did. He stayed as the pastor. He was the founding pastor of that church, remained the pastor of that church. So he limited himself geographically. And the result was Dr. Ray Stedman had a more significant impact. Now, I know I'm talking about preachers here today, talking about Jesus, who was a preacher, talking about Baxter, who was a preacher, and Stedman, a preacher. But, you know, this applies to all of us, not just to preachers. And I should go on to say that all of us, in a sense, are to be preachers. I don't know if you're aware of that. If you study the New Testament carefully, what you conclude is that each of us has been given the responsibility to declare the good news of Christ. And that's simply, that's what preaching is. But all of us have been given a responsibility to plant our lives somewhere as God leads us and as we minister to people in a significant manner and lead them to Christ and make disciples for Jesus Christ. We've had a family who was a very active family in our church come back to our church recently. As I was talking to one of the members of the family, this person said, you know, we really miss El Paso. And the thing that we miss most about El Paso is the church. We had the thought that when we moved where they now live, I won't identify where they live, but it's a much more prominent city in the world's eyes than El Paso is. They said we thought it was going to be better there. Everything was going to kind of ratchet up a notch or two for us. 
But what we discovered is that the grass is greener syndrome is not necessarily correct. And we wish we had never left El Paso. Isn't that interesting? People are wanting to get out of El Paso so fast. I know most of you never had that thought to try to get out of El Paso. But they just can't wait to leave this city. Now, El Paso is a city that, in some senses, is a lot like Palestine was as a nation. In the sense that it's obscure. I was watching the Houston Bowl two years ago when the Miners played football there. And I got weary of listening to one of the announcers keep talking about that tiny West Texas town of El Paso. I thought, he sure hasn't been here before. This is no tiny burg. And this city is a city that is not considered a leading city in the United States by people outside of it, nor is it considered even a leading city in Texas. But let me tell you, it's a place where God's at work. And if God has called you here... Be satisfied in being here and focus your energy here for the glory of God and let God use you here just like he used Richard Baxter in Kidderminster instead of in London. God wants to use us where we are if we will just yield ourselves to be useful to him, no matter where that might be. Jesus limited himself geographically. He also limited himself vocationally. This may not be the best word, but I think it actually is the best word to describe what Jesus did. We know for the first many years, up until he was 30, he was a carpenter by trade. But then when he began to itinerate and to preach the gospel, to spread the good news all over Palestine, in Galilee and also in Judea, and even sometimes in Samaria, which was off limits for a good Jew, he concentrated on one thing. There were a hundred good things at least that any man in Palestine could do, especially a man of God like Jesus. But he chose to do one thing. He came to preach the good news, and he was focused upon that. Men tried to get Jesus to increase his sphere. The most notable example of which was when his brothers came to him when there was a feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, in Jerusalem, and they were in Galilee. And you may remember how his half-brothers urged Jesus to go. They said, no one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret, Jesus. And Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but for you any time is right. The world is always pushing us to increase, and even within the church, to increase our sphere, to go here and to go there and to go yon. But really, what we need to do is to adopt a mentality of eliminating those things which are good in favor of that one thing which is best in our personal lives and in our church life. We need to be men and women who listen carefully enough to God to hear from Him and then to adjust our lives according to what He calls us to be and to do. Jesus says to us, follow me. Do you know that's your vocation in life? Last night I was sharing this message. There was a barber here. There was a doctor here. There was a teacher here. There was a Southwestern Bell. I guess it's not Southwestern Bell anymore, but a technician for them. And I looked all over this room, and there were people who were doing all sorts of things for a living. But they all have the same vocation if they are true followers of Jesus Christ. 
What I'm saying is, is what the, Paul, the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, as a, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to live a life worthy of your calling. What is your calling? If you're a Christian, your calling is to follow Jesus Christ. And what do we do when we follow Christ? We imitate Jesus. We do what Jesus did. We become like Jesus. And part of that is we are willing to narrow the focus of our lives. All of our lives as Christians, all of it, all of your life, all of my life is significant because it carries with it the possibility of sharing Christ with others and helping them to follow Christ like we're seeking to follow Jesus Christ. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this. He said that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you cannot take a vacation from your vocation. What was he saying? You can never escape the fact, if you're a follower of Christ, and I find it hard to wonder and ask why any of us would want to, but we do know sometimes we like to get out from under being a Christian. We want to go to Vegas, where what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Now, that's a bunch of bull. And I'm not going to say the rest of that word, but you know what I'm talking about? What happens in my life as a Christian doesn't stay where it happened. It follows with me. And the Bible says it follows some of us. Some of our sins are in the open, the Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2. But then it says some men's sins follow them to the judgment day secretly. But they will be exposed someday. So as a believer in Jesus Christ, what I need to do is concentrate on following Jesus. He has given me a vocation, and I need to think this way, and so do you. It's easy for me to do it, you might say, and you're probably right, because I'm a pastor. But what about you? What should your thinking be? If you're going to think the way God wants you to think and be the person God wants you to be, then you need to think of yourself as a Christian and then fill in the blank as far as your way of making a living is concerned. Jesus limited himself geographically. He limited himself vocationally. And he also limited himself intellectually. And by that I don't mean he didn't learn. He was a learner. But he limited himself as far as all the new thoughts of the day were concerned. All the new fads philosophically and theologically were concerned. There was a prevailing pluralism. Even in Palestine, you might say, wait a minute, all the people in Palestine were Jews, right? Well, for the most part, they were. They were Jewish. But do you know that there were different groups within Palestinian religious life? Within Judaism, there were different groups. And these groups oftentimes found themselves at odds with one another. But interestingly, some of those groups which were typically opponents came together to oppose Jesus. Two primary groups, the two primary groups, the Pharisees, they were the conservatives. If we had been Jews, we would have been in that camp probably because they believed in the Scriptures as being God's Word. They memorized the Scripture. They studied the Scripture. They believed in the element of the supernatural, and I hope you believe in the element of the supernatural. Their opposite group were the Sadducees. They were the aristocrats within Judaism, within Palestine. 
And they did not believe that the Scriptures, all the Scriptures, were valid. They only took those parts of what was called the Torah or the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Old Testament, as being authoritative, and they picked and chose those parts that they wanted to apply to their lives. And they did not believe in the supernatural. They didn't believe in life after death. They didn't believe in resurrection from the dead, therefore. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in any supernatural element. And Jesus infuriated both the conservative Pharisees and the liberal Sadducees. Jesus ticked them all off. And we're going to see in a moment why that was so. He was unafraid of being called a bigot. Now, you and I don't need to go out and try to pick a fight, and too many Christians do, try to pick a fight with unbelievers or people who don't see things the way they see it. We don't need to do that. Jesus spoke the truth, but I'm sure every time he spoke the truth, he spoke the truth in love, as Paul instructed the Ephesians to speak the truth in love. But he was unafraid to confront falsehood. He was a man of conviction. He was a non-compromising person. And we also must be willing to stand on the truth that God has revealed to us that's clearly the truth. Jesus was a sure man. And what I mean by that is he knew when he spoke, he was speaking the truth. We see this so clearly in the Sermon on the Mount where he says many times, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Wow, that's amazing, isn't it? He's quoting the ancients, and then he turns around, and then he says, but I'm saying to you, and what I'm saying to you takes precedent and priority over what the ancients may have said to you. He was confronted by a group of Pharisees, over the fact that his disciples, namely Jesus' disciples, did not wash their hands before they ate. Because there was this elaborate system of hand washing, not for hygienic purposes, but for religious purposes that people went through way beyond what was necessary before they would eat. And then Jesus took them to task. And in essence, what he said, this is recorded in Mark chapter 7, if you want to look at it in detail sometime. In essence, what Jesus said was, you have elevated the traditions of men over the Word of God. And in the process, you have nullified the Word of God. That didn't set real well with the Pharisees. What we need to be careful of, as we limit ourselves intellectually as it relates to our understanding of who God is, we need to be like John Wesley, the great, great man of God, who said, I, desire, I determined at one point in my life to become a man of one book. And which book was he referring to? The Scriptures. Not a bunch of writings about the Bible, although they can be helpful, but to be primarily a person of the Word of God. Does that mean that we don't read other things? Not at all. But when we do read other things, whether they're religious in nature, theological in nature, or in other fields of disciplines, of study, that we always read those things through the lens of what the Scriptures teach. And in doing so, we will be looking at it in the way in which God would have us to look at it. Jesus, I'm sure, repeated what he heard God say. I'm sure of it that he did that. 
And he had a profound impact as a result. Look at Matthew 7 again. And let's notice the last two verses of the chapter which describe the response his teaching drew from the crowd who listened to him teach. Look at verse 28. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. Now, there are many speakers and teachers who can amaze their audience. But Jesus amazed them in a different way and for a different reason. Look at verse 29. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Now, the scribes were their teachers. They were Pharisees. And one thing we can say about the Pharisees, they were authoritarian. They tie up heavy religious loads and lay them on the backs of the people and crush the people. And they were very dogmatic about what they said. And they probably shouted when they talked. They made a lot of noise when they talked. But Jesus sometimes spoke. Sometimes he talked with a loud voice. But sometimes Jesus talked just like you and I would talk conversationally when we're in conversation. But he spoke with authority. Have you ever stopped to think there's a big difference between being authoritarian and being authoritative? Jesus was authoritative. Why? Because he spoke the word of God. He spoke the word of God because he thought God's thoughts. He was in constant communication with the Father. The Father told him what to say. We know this because Jesus says as much in the book of John. And then Jesus just said what he heard the Father say. Frequently, Jesus will introduce some saying with this formula. Verily, verily, or truly, truly. And then he says, I say to you. Do you know the words... Truly, truly, or verily, verily, translate the word amen, amen. And whenever someone would say amen, amen, that person was basically saying, I affirm what you said. So when Jesus would say, for instance, verily, verily, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He's saying, amen, Father, amen, Father. And then he's merely repeating what he's heard the Father say to him. Jesus thought the thoughts of God, spoke the thoughts of God. Now, what does that have to do with you and me? It has a lot to do with us. The Bible says we have the mind of Christ. That does not mean that we're as brilliant intellectually as Jesus, but what it does say is we have the very thoughts of Jesus reported in Scripture. And as we look into the Word of God and we take God's Word and we ingest it and we mull it over and we meditate on it, then it becomes a part of the way in which we think. And we can limit ourselves in the sense that we always view whatever we're doing, whatever endeavor we undertake, whatever thought process we undertake through the lens of the words of Jesus as we let the words of Christ dwell in us richly with all wisdom. A fourth way in which Jesus limited himself was socially. And I really grappled for the right word here, and hopefully I did not choose a word that's too far afield. I think you'll understand what I'm saying. Jesus was not afraid to offend. He didn't offend on purpose in most cases. Sometimes he did, as we're going to see in a moment. But sometimes Jesus would praise people. Can you think of an example where Jesus praised somebody?
Have you got it? Okay, Peter. David said, Peter, we looked at this last week where he said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but your Father who is in heaven. Well, let's look at chapter 8. We're in the proximity of chapter 8 of Matthew. Let's look at a notable example of Jesus praising someone. And interestingly, this someone was a Gentile. He... Verse 5 says, And when he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, entreating him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering great pain. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority. This man had a hundred soldiers under his leadership. And when he uses that Adverb two, I too am a man under authority. What does that say that he recognized about Jesus himself? He recognized that Jesus was a man under authority. And he understood that Jesus' power was derived from a higher power. Now, please don't mishear me this morning. Jesus was fully God when he was approached by this centurion when Jesus was in Capernaum. But what we do know is that when Jesus became a man, he did not lose his divinity, his deity. But what he did do was he chose not to exercise the rights of being God without the permission and direction of God the Father. And in that sense, he came under authority. Now, if we're like Christ, what are we going to do? We're going to come under Authority And whose authority are we going to come under? We are going to come under Jesus' authority. Just like this centurion was saying, I'm going to put myself under your authority. Do you know, maybe the greatest lesson, and most of us are too old for this to learn it if we haven't learned it yet. But the greatest lesson a young person can learn is to learn to be at peace with being under the authorities that God has established for that young person. Mother, father, Later, boss, learning to be under authority. God honors people who submit themselves to the authorities that God has established in their lives. And we all are under authority, without exception in this room. You may own your own business, but believe it or not, you're still under authority. You're under God's authority, and particularly you're under Jesus' authority. Look what he goes on to say here. With soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many shall come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What did Jesus commend? What was there about this man that appealed so greatly to Jesus that Jesus would... Praise him. It was his faith, wasn't it? His understanding of what real faith is. Real faith is coming under the authority of Jesus Christ. Doing what Jesus said. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Do you know how you show that you're a person of faith? By obeying Jesus Christ. It's not by necessarily, although this is part of faith, 
agreeing intellectually and assenting to a group of truths about Jesus Christ and about the Bible. Those are important. But if that's all you've got in the area of faith, you do not have a genuine faith. You have to take those truths and apply them in the sense that you yield yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But there were other people whom Jesus read the right act to. Matthew 23, read it sometime. The Pharisees. He let them have it. He called them a brood of vipers. That was not complimentary, was it? Is that the way to win friends and influence people? Not really. I'm sure some of those men to whom he spoke were convicted by the word of God and they repented and gave their lives. But Jesus got in their face because as Mark read from John chapter 2 earlier, Jesus can see right through people. There were people... According to John 2.23 in Jerusalem, who believed in Jesus, but the Bible says Jesus was not entrusting himself to them. Wow. That's a little scary, isn't it? Has Jesus entrusted himself to you? I trust he has. If you claim to know him and you're seeking to submit yourself to him, then certainly he does. Jesus refused to let sinful men feel good about themselves because he knew if he continued to do that the result would be that they would go skipping their way into eternal separation from God and what Jesus calls hell. Well, let's talk in the moments we have left regarding the benefits for Jesus and their benefits for us too of limiting ourselves geographically, vocationally, intellectually, socially and any number of other ways. These are just suggestive ways in which Jesus limited himself. And why did he limit himself? So he could do what God called him to do. One of the benefits was that Jesus was joyful. Could Jesus have been happy had Jesus not walked within narrow limits? I think one of the most difficult times in a person's life used to be when you were in your late teens and early 20s when you were trying to decide what to do with your life. Now maybe it's the late 20s and early 30s because young people today postpone assuming responsibility of their lives many times. But weren't those miserable times when you were trying to figure out what you were supposed to do professionally? But think about when you finally decided to focus on one area, there was great relief, wasn't there? And satisfaction when you finally determined what it was that you should do. Jesus was joyful. He knew from an early age, at least from the age of 12, what he was to do. He patiently waited for the next 18 years until the time had come for him. Jesus was joyful because he limited himself. You may be disturbed emotionally in some way and not really happy with your life because you have not learned to limit the focus of your life. And my encouragement for you today, and I think Christ as well would be, to learn to limit yourself so that you can be more joyful. Jesus was also powerful as a result of his limiting himself. He made an impression because Jesus stayed in one place and hit the same nail on the head until it was completely driven in. As I mentioned earlier, he could have traveled the world espousing his teaching, but rather he stayed in Palestine. Many more ears could have heard what he had to say. But... He chose to concentrate on a small group of men, unlikely characters, 
to be given the responsibility to share this good news eventually throughout the world. And it's estimated that Jesus taught the same thing over and over again, probably dozens of times, to these twelve, one of whom abdicated and left Jesus at the end of his life. He taught them over and over again. And aren't you glad he did? So that it was etched in their minds and carved on their hearts so that they could remember as the Holy Spirit brought these teachings of Christ to their remembrance to give us what we now know as our New Testament. Jesus made himself powerful by limiting himself. As it is with rivers, so it is with people. Have you stopped to think how the power of a river, and we owe a lot to rivers, don't we? Not just the water, but we owe, maybe not in El Paso so much, but in certain parts of the world, in the United States actually, the area where I grew up in the Tennessee Valley, electricity is generated by rivers. Rivers are important for many reasons. But the more narrow the bank is of a river, as a rule, the more powerful it is. Without banks, what is a river? It's a swamp, isn't it? Now, swamps are good for very little. They're just sort of stagnant bodies of water, sometimes filled with disease and all kinds of scary creatures, right? But we, as we limit ourselves, become more powerful. One of the obscure kings of Judah was named Jotham, And there's a verse that is a great verse for me. I think of it too infrequently, but when I think of it, it encourages me, exhorts me, rebukes me. It's found in 2 Chronicles 27.6. It says, Jotham became powerful because he kept an even course in the presence of the Lord his God. He focused, didn't he? He kept an even course in the presence of the Lord his God. Solomon, one of Jotham's ancestors, says this in the Proverbs. He says, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. What was he saying? If I don't have discipline in my life, self-discipline in my life, the result is I'm going to be defeated and maybe even dead. Because that's what, what, that is what happened in antiquity when a city was attacked by an enemy and overpowered by that enemy. As a rule, and I know this is true in my life, and I would think if we were honest with each other, it would be true for most of us. We suffer from sad, spiritual attention deficit disorder. Are you like that? Is your mind going everywhere when you're trying to have your quiet time in the morning? Are you a person who dabbles in so many different things instead of focusing on the one thing? We need to become like the Apostle Paul where he says, but one thing I do. Not these thousand things I dabble in, but one thing I do. Paul was powerful. Why was Paul powerful? For the same reason that Jesus was powerful. They both brought themselves under the authority of God, and the result was that they focused upon that thing for which they were called. Please understand that the Holy Spirit's the one who has to do this. We can't just determine today as a result of our thinking about these things today. We're going to go out. This is what I think when I preach a message like this or teach this truth. I'm going to go out and I'm going to become more self-disciplined. Remember that the discipline 
that God gives is the one that gives us the power. And it's a fruit of the Spirit. The last thing that Paul writes about the fruit of the Spirit, he says, and the last thing is self-control. Jesus also, in addition to becoming joyful and powerful as a result of limiting himself, became successful. What makes a person successful? Well, doing what that person was created to do. Psalm 139.16 says, All the days that were ordained for me were written in your book even before there was one of them. Today, if you know Christ, today, there was a plan that was placed in a book in heaven for your life for today. Would it make a difference in your life if you viewed your life that way? Every day, it wouldn't mind. Jesus came to the end of his life and he says something that probably nobody has ever been able to say except him. I have finished the work that you've given me to do. God's given you a work to do and I don't pretend to know exactly how that will play out in your life, but he's given everyone in this room a particular work to do. If you know Christ, he's given you a calling, he's given you a gift at least one, and he's given you a mission associated with who you are and where you are. And what we need to do is follow Jesus' example to live in a narrowing way so that we can accomplish what God has called us to do. Jesus lived 33 years. That's a short time. Some of us have lived twice as long, maybe even two and a half times as long. We must not strive to live long, but to finish the work that Christ has given us to do. Jesus says, in a very narrow way, come to me. To me. Jesus says repeatedly, follow me. Jesus says, abide in me. That's the call of Christ to us. And if we do obey the Lord in that way, what's going to happen? We're going to become like Him. And part of that will be that our lives will count. Not just for time, but for eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we come and we say, forgive us. For not being as focused as we should be upon you. And we ask, Lord, that you would help each one of us to repent, change our ways. We know this is beyond our power. We've tried so many times to start over, and we've become frustrated with that. We know we cannot do it apart from your power. Lord, please empower us as we trust you and abide in you to follow you and to make a difference. Show us, Lord, where we need to change and then please give us the energy to do that changing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.